Amen. Thank you, Nicole. Church, good to see you this morning. Well, let's consider John 14 one last time before uh, we push pause for a couple weeks. We'll still consider the Gospel of John next week um, in uh, the first chapter of John as we consider Christmas and the coming of, of Christ. But here, John 14, we, we find another Christmas truth. Uh, even as last week, we saw that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And, and that's something that we remember at Christmas time, very often thinking about um, the child, uh, the Christ child, Jesus, God with us. Jesus in John 14 was promising to be with us uh, um, as the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit with us in the midst of this world. And so that God with us not only speaks to the Christ child that we remember at Christmas time, but it speaks to the triune God being with us, uh, which was a, a great reminder for us last week. Uh, this week, John continues teasing out those truths, and, and I've titled it Incarnational Witness. And, and I want us to see the incarnational witness of Christ, uh, of course, especially in this Christmas, when we think of the coming of the Son of God taking on flesh, becoming God incarnate, wrapping on flesh is what that word means. We remember that this Christmas season, but we also remember that um, just as Jesus was an incarnate, incarnational witness of the triune God here on this earth, we too are sent out to be an incarnational witness to the world. We are taking the Word of God and the power of the, the Spirit of God into the world to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who have yet to believe it. And so I, I hope we'll see um, not only in, in the, the person of the triune God this, this witness to us, and what it brings to us. But I hope that we'll go out, even as Jesus' last words in this section of Scripture arise, let's go uh, out uh, as Jesus was making His way to the cross. And we had a wonderful opportunity to do that yesterday, uh, church. Uh, God has, in His grace, in His kindness, in His timing, given us this open door here at this YMCA to proclaim the gospel uh, to come alongside the, the YMCA to fulfill their mission of what they were founded to do over 150 years ago, to apply Christian pr principles to mind, body, and spirit for all. And so while uh, the Y had the, the annual cookies and cocoa with Santa and uh, had a, a sweet time yesterday with games and crafts and, of course, cookies and cocoa and Santa, uh, who's a dear friend of ours, isn't he? Got, you know, I'm, okay, it's an inside joke, but uh, dear friend, Santa's a dear friend of ours. Uh, we had a sweet time yesterday, and I just want to show you the opportunity that we had as a church as a whole uh, to be an incarnational witness to our community. But I hope that encourages you to not just wait for an event for us as a church to be an incarnational witness to our community, but you consider how you 
uh, with the, pres- the promise of the presence of the triune God with you are to be an incarnational witness every day like we had the opportunity yesterday. Uh, but just consider the opportunity to have tables set up before us and to open up Christmas coloring books and to look at some of you serving around those tables and to listen to you asking little kids, do you know who it is on that picture that you're coloring? Do you know that that's Jesus? Do you know who Jesus is? And to begin to tell them Jesus is God's Son who came to this world to live and to die for you. As simple as we could in childlike terms, it was so wonderful to to see that being done around the tables with coloring books and crafts. And just consider the opportunities of the few people I got to talk to yesterday. Had a wonderful conversation with a Vietnamese grandfather who really didn't want to talk to me very much. Uh, But upon hearing that I had actually been to Vietnam a few years ago, all of the sudden was now more open to talk. And to have a wonderful gospel-centered conversation with this older man who thought I was a priest and then found out I was married and was like, how does that work? (laughs) You know, Uh, but to tell him, no, I'm a Christian pastor, uh, and that's different because most of what he knows in Vietnam as far as the Christian religion is Catholicism. And so to be able to tell him the difference between the Catholicism he may have heard about of be good, be good, be good, be good, to try to earn your way to, uh, to heaven, was able to tell him, know that there was one who came, one, the Son of God, who alone could be good, 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 and died in your place. And really, you know, I don't know what the Spirit will do with that, but there was at least a moment of realization that this is different. This is different from the other things I've heard. What an opportunity to be. That would not have happened had we not been incarnational, in person. Yeah, there could have been some tracks on the table, but would he, he wouldn't have been able to read those, which is why we've connected to be able to now give him a Vietnamese Bible later. I was able to hand the Bible to uh, an older Indian man from Hyderabad in southern India and to be able to hand him the gospel and to see him flipping through the pages and to point him to John 3.16 and say, this one, you know. Um, to be able to have a conversation with uh, an Egyptian lady who, praise God, after a little bit of conversation in the gospel, found out she was a Coptic Christian believer worshiping at the Coptic, Egyptian Coptic church over on Eden Road, less than a mile from here. Church, consider the opportunity that if we'll just walk through some of those open doors and begin to ask good questions, we'll have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel to the nations right here in this YMCA, uh, in your own neighborhood, um, at your doctor's appointments, whom you've told me even this morning, your doctors are international. Um, We have these opportunities to be able to proclaim the gospel, and I hope this text encourages you to be incarnational in your witness with the the help of uh, our triune God. And so, 
The truth that I think comes off of uh, the pages in this paragraph of Scripture is this, that we rise and go with the triune God as a witness to the world. We rise and go with the triune God as a witness to the world. And like last week, as Jesus is giving us some of these last words or the disciples, some of these last words in the upper room before he goes out to, uh, to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane and eventually be arrested, uh, to later be crucified on the cross, to be buried, to be raised on the third day and eventually ascend. And Jesus, like we looked at last week in John 14, is highlighting where, where last week really focused on the promise of the presence of the triune God, here Jesus adds on top of that and shows not only do we have the promise of the presence of the triune God with us. Consider what the presence of the triune God means for us in addition to that. What is the the Spirit adding to us? What what is the, the Son giving us? What comes from this this presence of the Father with us um, in the triune God? And so we'll consider just a few more aspects and blessings of uh, the presence of the triune God with us. And the first one is the Spirit's help. Now this is a, a word and an idea that was already introduced earlier In the passage that we looked at last week, when Jesus said that He would go to the Father, He would ask the Father, and the Father will give you another Helper. There, Jesus was simply saying that you'll have another Helper. I've been your Helper up to this point, and I've told you that I'm going away, and I know that may seem troubling. I know that may seem burdensome. I know that may even make you fearful. But I'll send you another helper. And the Spirit's presence, just one of the three persons of the triune God, will be present with us. And Jesus brings that idea up of that helper, that advocate, that counselor, that one who will come alongside us. Uh, that, That Greek word paraclete, one to call alongside uh is the Holy Spirit. He is our helper. And so Jesus says there in in verse 25, when we're considering the Spirit's help, He says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. And so Jesus is encouraging them with these things while He's still with them, having promised that He's going away. And so He gives them this but. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, and church, we can rest assured that He has already done that because He said He would go to the Father, that He would actually rise from the dead to be able to go to the Father and intercede and ask the Father, and the Father would give. And so while Jesus' hearers, the disciples there, are having to trust in that promise, church, we, 2,000 years later, we're, we, we are living in, in the midst of experiencing that promise that, that Jesus would ask the Father and the Father would send the Helper in our name. But consider 
what this, this helper, this Holy Spirit, consider the kind of help that the Holy Spirit is giving. Jesus says that He will teach you all things and, number two, bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So Jesus' promise regarding the Holy Spirit's presence with them in the form of help is teaching and remembrance. Now that's especially needed, consider, for those disciples who were in that room that evening. Um, they have the law. They have the, the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. They have the prophets. They have the Old Testament that is anticipating this coming Messiah, this promised anointed one of God to come and save the people from their sins. But they don't have the New Testament. They don't have the gospel accounts. They're living in the midst of the gospel. And so for these disciples um, who have sat in on all of Jesus' teaching, this was a great promise that Jesus would not, e not only teach them in a fuller uh, understanding what He has already taught them, right? Because there were moments in the disciples' lives where Jesus would say something like, but what do you mean by that? I don't fully understand. And those things wouldn't come to fruition until Jesus died and rose and ascended to heaven. Um, and so there was confusion on part. So to hear a promise from Jesus that I'll teach you in a fuller understanding everything that I've said to you up to this point, and not only that, I'll call to your memory. I will remind you of everything I've taught you. That's good news. Do you remember those moments in, in class when your teacher was just rolling, just continuously, and then at the end was like, I'm going to give you all of my notes so you don't, you don't have to write all this down. You don't have to remember all that. I'm going to give you these things. So that is that kind of moment where Jesus said, I'm going to give you a helper that's better than the teacher's notes. It's, it's you know, actually the teacher himself is going to be with you when you take the test, when you are sent out uh, to have to, to, to live this out. And so, so Jesus' encouragement was specifically encouraging to those disciples there. And, and we see this fleshed out when we're considering even the writing of the New Testament. Um, as, as Paul mentions in 2 Timothy 3, Verse 16, that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for all of God's work. Or 2 Peter 1.21, where Peter, who's in this room that evening, he writes to the early church, the, the church the persecuted church, mind you, which is, will be helpful to remember a little bit later. He says no, in, in 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Peter didn't write these things down because he had a good memory or because he got to sit in on the lessons of Jesus. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter is giving credit where credit is due. That even his letters and, and his preaching and his discipling of, 
of Mark, who wrote down the Gospel of Mark, those things were written down not because of Peter, not because of Mark, but because the Holy Spirit taught them the things that Christ had first taught them and then reminded them of all of those things so that they could write these things down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's how that was good news for Jesus' hearers on that day, on that evening, at that uh, upper room discourse. But that becomes encouraging to John's readers who are reading John's gospel, whom was in that upper room that night and was taught what these things mean in a fuller way later on and was reminded by the Holy Spirit all of these things so that he could write these things down. Why, John 20? So that you might believe and have life in his name. So John is here in in a roundabout way having written the gospel so that people would believe that Jesus is the Christ and have life in his name. He's saying that I'm able to write these things down because Jesus, even though he went away, he gave me a helper to teach me these things even in a more full way. And I've written them down under the Holy Spirit's help. And so John's readers, both in the first century and us 2,000 years later, are encouraged that these are not just man's words, John's words, the best that he could recall. These are God's words written down so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ and have life in his name. It's given Christians for 2,000 years, whether they're Egyptian Coptic Christians or American Southern Christians, encouragement to be able to hold fast to who God is and who God's people ought to be. And the Spirit gives you help, Christian, in bringing your heart to life to be be able to actually see that these things are true. The Spirit gives you uh, the ability to know and understand these things. Not once. I mean, it's not like we as Christians, our hearts are made alive, um, our minds are renewed, and all of the sudden we are downloaded. Everything in the Bible, everything about Jesus. But over time, as we read the Word of God that the Spirit of God uh, has made known to us and protected for us and written for us, um, we begin to know the things of God more fully. And Christian, have you not been blessed by the help of the Holy Spirit where at a time when you were struggling in the midst of the night, a time when you were struggling, about to fall into temptation in the midst of the day, a time when you needed to share a good word with others, that because the Holy Spirit had given these disciples the words to write down because God had protected His Word over the centuries, millennia, because God had, because you had spent time in the Word of God, the Spirit brought to mind a scripture that encouraged you in the night, that strengthened you in the midst of temptation, that helped you in your witness to the world. We've experienced those moments as Christians. And so, while it was true for the disciples in a specific way uh, in those coming years as they would write out God's Word, the help of the Holy Spirit is still alive and well 
for those of us who have been born again by the Holy Spirit to teach us the things of God and to bring to our remembrance the, the things of God. And, and just note that the Spirit does not teach us uh, anything but the Word of God Himself. This is what the Spirit's work was to do according to Jesus, to teach us Jesus' words and to bring to remembrance Jesus' words. So consider that. Christian, as you go out to be a witness in the world with the presence of the triune God, you're going with a helper who's going to help you understand the Word and is going to bring to remembrance the Word of God that you might be able to share, not your words. Please don't, please don't share your thoughts on life when someone uh, needs to know the way to be saved. Share the gospel. Share the good news of Jesus Christ with them as the Holy Spirit brings remembrance of the Word. But another aspect of the triune God's help for us in addition to the Spirit's help, is the Son's peace. The Son's peace. And here's where Christmas enters the, the scene. Peace. Right? You, you see this word along with my wife's name, Joy, everywhere at Christmas time. Right? Joy, peace, hope. You've got Christmas ornaments with these words on them. Uh, candles with them. There's banners, there's all of these things, and, and yet it's peace uh, is one of those words at Christmas time that remind us of the Christ child. We consider Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 through 7, that great messianic um, or, or Christ-like prophecy of the coming child. Isaiah 9, 6, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it and justice with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You hear there in those wonderful titles that we remember at Christmas time of this child who will be born, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. And while we, uh, we may at times want to say, consider how those different titles speak to the different aspects of the triune God, the uh, wonderful counselor, we might think, oh, the Holy Spirit, uh, or the mighty God, the everlasting Father. Well, God the Father. And the Prince of Peace, well, that's Jesus. But the Scripture is saying, no, Jesus, this child who is born, is the, he is these things. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God, the everlasting Father. Not saying that he's God the Father, but he is like the everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace. 
And, and again, here we're at that crossroads, that, that edge of the, the mystery of the triune God of trying to, wanting to understand it as finite beings and yet knowing that we never fully will understand our infinite triune God. But we're reminded that Jesus is the, the Prince of Peace and the peace uh, of His government will never end. We could consider that, that great passage in Luke 10 uh, that we heard sung to us last night at Graham's concert in Luke chapter 2, verse 10, where the angel said to, them, to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You shall find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace among those with whom He is pleased. And so, in the Old Testament, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ child was to be characterized by peace. Characterized by peace. And so when the angels come and declare that this Christ child has been born among them in Bethlehem, what did they proclaim? Peace. And so here, too, in our passage this morning, Jesus begins... Uh, in verse 27 by saying, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And so here Jesus says as, as His role of the, in the triune God and His presence with us is is going to mean at least, according to this passage, a peace uh, that, like Paul will write in Philippians, surpasses all understanding. It's not a peace like the world gives. Peace here in this passage and peace according to the Old Testament Jews, that word shalom was not just the absence of war and conflict as if that alone would bring peace. But it was an additional blessing, uh, an additional aspect of peace. It was the, the absence of conflict, but it was the addition of blessing. And, and in this period of history, it's, there, there's a, a Latin word that describes this period of history that the Romans brought in, and it's the Pax Romana. Now, if you're anything like me, I didn't learn my history until I became a, a good seminary student and a good pastor, uh, but I remembered that phrase, you know, that stuck out to me as, as something that, that happened in history. I couldn't tell you when that happened, but as we begin to study our, our Bible and our history, this is the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome was something that was happening during Jesus' lifetime. It was a period of peace that was established by the, 
the sword, really, of Rome. Uh, it was a, a temporary peace that the Romans brought about uh, by conquering these, this area of the world. And, and so there was a, a period of peace. And in entering into that period of history, Jesus is likely bringing uh, reference to that, saying, I'm not going to give you simply a horizontal, national, um, temporary peace like Rome has given you at this period, especially because uh, Jesus will say something very similar later on in, in this upper room discourse uh, that I'll give you peace, but in this world you're going to be persecuted. You're, you're going to be killed even for your feasts. Uh, for your faith. And so while you may live in the midst of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, because you have my name on you, you're not going to experience that horizontal peace. If you want to, you can have the name of Caesar on you, but if you have the name of Christ on you, you're not going to experience that horizontal temporary peace that Rome promises you, but I'm going to offer you something better. I'm going to offer you vertical peace with God. God, the creator and sustainer of everyone and of everything, who sent me, Jesus says, to, uh, to live the life that Adam couldn't live, to live the life that you couldn't live, and to die on the cross, and to make peace between God and man, between God and all of those who would repent of their rebellion against God and trust Christ as their Savior, Jesus was offering vertical peace for all of us who are described as enemies of God, dead in our sins and trespasses. He offers us to become friends of God, no, no longer dead, but made alive in Christ. And so Jesus is, is really trying to give the disciples that evening uh, as, as Jesus will go out to the garden and will be arrested and will be beaten and will be crucified. You, they might wonder, is, is what he said true? Are we going to experience peace? But Jesus is trying to get across to them not an earthly not a horizontal peace, but a vertical, an eternal peace between God and man that is much more important than a horizontal peace. And it will actually cause you to give up your horizontal earthly peace so that others might know this vertical peace. Why else would missionaries live the, the, the peace that we get to experience here in our area of the world as Christians and go to places where they're persecuted for their faith? Why, why else would people give up the comforts of this life here in 2023 and go to a place where those comforts are not going to be present? It's because they have a vertical peace with God that surpasses all human under, understanding, all earthly peace, and they want others to know who have less access to the gospel, less access to this good news of great joy that should be for all people. And so Christians give up earthly 
peaceful situations to go to places where there's no peace, conflict, war, famine, disease, strife, all of those things surrounded by other religions to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ so that they too might have that peace with God. And that's what we're called to as well, to be an incarnational witness. That's what missionaries are doing. They who've experienced this peace from the Son of God as a part of the triune God's presence with them are willing to give up everything else to go be an incarnational witness around the world. The least we could do, Christian, here as members of the Fields Church is get up somewhat early on Saturday, maybe, and go and serve at a YMCA event to be able to proclaim the peace that we have with this eternal God through Jesus Christ the Son. The least we could do is this Christmas open our mouths and share of the good news of great joy that, that has been made known to us with those who have yet to believe it. Giving a gift, uh, a physical gift, so that you have the reason and the opportunity to open up your mouth. Inviting someone in to sit around your table so that you have the opportunity to do that. Maybe asking the question, what do you do around Christmas time? So that you have the opportunity to maybe tell what you do around Christmas time, what your focus is around Christmas time. I don't know what that's going to look like for you, but if you, Christian, have experienced the peace of God, uh, uh, the peace with God through the Son of God as Jesus offers uh, to us through faith in Him by grace, then we too have to go out as His sent ones, His uh, ones taking this incarnational word and witness to the world with whatever opportunities you're given. This peace is the first time John mentions it in his gospel. He'll mention it again in John 16, 33, as I mentioned earlier, speaking that the war, in the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And he'll mention it three more times at the end of John when he encourages them that they're to have this peace, this peace I, I give to you. Peace be with you, Jesus says. But this is a word that fills the rest of our New Testament. And I, I was encouraged by uh, just the, uh, the stroke, the brushstroke of peace throughout the rest of the New Testament. I want you to consider this as one of the words that begins to describe the people uh, of God in the New Testament this gift that's given in the Son of God. Uh, we can consider in the book of Acts that even amidst the persecution, the church was described as having peace and preaching peace. It's peace along with grace that becomes Paul's greeting in his letters. Grace and peace to you. Peace is the fruit of justification by faith in Romans 5.8. Peace is what Paul called the sinful church of Corinth too in first and second Corinthians. Peace is the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.8. Peace is not only who Jesus is and what He brings, it is what we are to maintain in the unity of the Spirit in Ephesians 4.3. Peace is what guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus in Philippians 4.7. 
Peace is what ought to rule our hearts according to Colossians 3.15. The church in Thessalonica is urged to be at peace with one another while the world is not at peace. In 1 Thessalonians 5.13-3, Paul tells Timothy to pray for our leaders in the midst of the Pax Romana so that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in 1 Timothy 2. Too. The writer of Hebrews says that discipline yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. In Hebrews 12.11, an encouragement uh, to enjoy the peace of God and, and to follow God there, so that we don't have to be disciplined to bring about the peaceful fruit of righteousness later. And Peter uh, tells uh, them to seek peace in 1 Peter 3, 1 in the, uh, in the midst of the persecution that they're experiencing. And all of this is before we experience the ultimate peace that is described in the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21 when God perfectly and ultimately dwells with man. Christian, consider what more could we ask for? We have this peace given to us in the Son of God uh, this peace that transforms our lives, which is why Jesus follows that up with this command second time in John 14 where He introduced this command in verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Here, after Jesus promises peace, unlike the world can give to them, He says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Literally, stop being troubled, Jesus says. I know I've told you I'm going away, but stop being troubled. I came to make you at peace with God. Who cares what this world is going to do with you? Who cares what this world offers you? Rest in the peace that I give you. Stop being troubled. Stop being afraid. And if Jesus, the Son of God, has given us this peace unlike the world can give to us, and Jesus commands them and us now to let not our hearts be troubled and stop being afraid, then Christian, we need to stop thinking that a new job or a new salary or something new this Christmas will help you be more at peace than Jesus will. Jesus has promised peace that money cannot buy. Stop thinking a new relationship or the end of a current relationship would bring you peace. He's promised us peace with God through Himself that surpasses any earthly relationship. Stop thinking that just another hour of sleep or an hour scrolling or watching something will bring you peace at the beginning or the end of your day. He promises us peace through the eternal rest and satisfaction in Him. Stop thinking that another bite, another drink will bring you peace. He promises us peace through Himself as the living bread and living water. Stop thinking that another pound shed towards the new year or better health diagnosis will bring you peace. He has promised peace through the hope and uh, the hope of new resurrected bodies one day. 
Stop thinking of another dwelling place with a yard or another room or another story or another garage that will bring you peace. But He's promised us a place with many rooms that He's preparing for us. Christian, we have to stop looking to the things of this world for peace because they will not satisfy. But Jesus offers us a peace that the world can't even get get close to. Uh, A world that only Christ offers us. And so, look to Christ this Christmas season. The incarnate God who offers us peace. And then take that peace to the world around you, um, spending more on others than you're spending on yourself this Christmas. Uh, Giving time to others rather than simply taking time for yourself. Being okay with what you have rather than simply trying to add on, on top of those things. Persevering in the midst of health struggles um, by faith, knowing you have hope in uh, the future, resurrected bodies. Christian, let's live differently this Christmas. Uh, don't spend the same. Don't, don't spend your time the same, your money the same, um, your lives the same, your free time the same. Let's live differently. And if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian and, and you've attempted to find peace in all of those things I just described that the world offers. And you, like all of many of us as Christians here, found them lacking uh, time and time again. Look to Jesus this morning, the Son of God, who gave up peace in heaven with the triune God to wrap on flesh and, and become God incarnate for us to live in the midst of this war-torn world where he would experience the heights of that at the crucifixion so that we might experience peace with God. Look to Jesus today to make you at peace with God and then the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And Christian, uh, don't be like the Israelites who once they were delivered out of Egypt by the plagues through the Red Sea, through the provision of living water and living bread in, on their way to the promised land, complained, became bitter, and wanted to go back to Egypt. Let's not go back to the things of the world thinking that they'll satisfy us. Let's always, as Graham challenged us this morning from reading from Psalm 121, I believe, that we look to the Lord for our help. We lift up our eyes to the heavens. From where comes our help? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So we've got the Spirit's help in teaching us the Word, reminding us of the Word. We've got the Son's presence with us in in the form of peace uh, with us. But Jesus goes on in verse 28 and and highlights a joy that comes from from the Father. Really a a joy that comes knowing that the Son would go to the Father because of who the Father is. In verse 28, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. This is what Jesus had already told them. This is what introduced this fearful these fearful thoughts, these troubled hearts uh, back in chapter 13. 
You heard me say that I'm going away and I will come to you. He says, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. Jesus had already uh, said to them, as we looked at last week in verse 15 and three, uh, two other times in the previous paragraphs, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Really a, a promise that those who love me keep my commands. And so here Jesus said, you, you've heard that I'm going away and I'm coming back. And if you had really loved me, you would have rejoiced. You would have rejoiced that I'm going away. Not been sad and not been fearful. You would have, you would have rejoiced if you really understood who I am. The Son of God who left heaven and came to earth. And told you that I'm going away. You would have rejoiced because you would have heard that I'm going back to the Father. I'm going back. I'm going to be victorious. I'm going to sit at the right hand of the Father. You would have rejoiced at that knowledge. And here Jesus says something that if, if by itself um, is all we had, might be a little bit confusing. But with all of God's Word is just a, a wonderful new detail into both the divinity and humanity of Christ. When Jesus says, uh, you should have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. If we take that out of context, we'll end up calling ourselves Jehovah's Witnesses. Or if, if that were just the new age error, uh, you could have called them Arians back in, in the first centuries after the church who believed that Jesus was not God. Because see, the Bible says that the Father is greater than the Son. Even Jesus says that, they'll say. That Jesus was not equal with God. He was not God Himself. And if that were all we had, that would probably be how we ought to interpret it. But that's not all we have. We have the rest of the Gospel of John that as we have seen almost on every page of Scripture, Jesus has shown in one form or another, one way or another, that He is God, equal with God. Um, and yet, Jesus um, is not God the Father, and He's not God the Spirit. Uh, they are one and yet three. And so what, Je what is Jesus saying here when He's saying that the Father is greater what I think Jesus is getting at here is that is describing um, something in the midst of Jesus' humanity. That Jesus, in his humanity, the writer of Hebrews would say, was made a little bit lower than the angels for a time. Even though Jesus uh, is the, the radiance of the glory of God in Hebrews chapter 1, um, the writer would describe Jesus that for a time was made a little bit lower than the angels when he became God incarnate and wrapped on flesh. Didn't mean he, became, he, did, he stopped being God, but it's, it's kind of like the idea that Paul puts forward in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus, uh, though he was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And he became a servant 
stooping down, making himself a little bit lower. And so Jesus, in his humanity, can say that the Father is greater than I at this moment. It doesn't mean that Jesus is not God. It doesn't mean that they're not equal in essence and nature. But Jesus, in his humanity, is saying, I've put on flesh to come and do what humanity could not do. What Adam couldn't do, what you and I couldn't do, which was to live a perfect and sinless life. And so Jesus, as that mediator who's coming to bring peace between God and man, is saying for this moment in his humanity, um, you should have rejoiced because I, God, who became man, am going to go, I know, I know. It's hard. It really is. Uh, I'm going back to the Father. And you should have rejoiced at that. For I, I will be victorious in that. I will have accomplished what I came to do. And so Jesus is saying here that there is a joy that's given by knowing who the Father is in all of His glory in heaven. And a joy that's given by knowing that the Son, though He became God incarnate and an incarnational witness to the world of who God is, He came, He lived, He died, and He rose, and He ascended to the right hand of, uh, of the Father. And there should be great joy uh, this Christmas season, not only knowing that Jesus Christ came, but knowing where he is. There ought to be a joy at considering the glory of God the Father and that the Son, though he had human, uh, wrapped on human flesh, he now, with that resurrected, glorified human flesh, is now sitting next to the Father in heaven. We need to be able to find joy uh, in these truths of this triune God, both Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even though, as Jesus has said to them, that it, it, it could be troubling in knowing that He's going away. Consider this, Jesus' words, like a parent's words. When, when they leave a child and they have to go somewhere to get something for that child. Where, while that child may be fearful and troubled that their parent is leaving, if they would just consider that their parent is going to get a toy in the other room or going to get some food in the kitchen or going to the store to get something to bring back for them, we too consider what Jesus uh, has accomplished, where He is at what He is doing at the right hand of the Father, even interceding for us. And so the promise of the presence of the triune God gives us help in the form of the Holy Spirit, peace in the Son, joy in the Father. But that's all in the midst of the devil's world. And that's the last thing I want us to note. That's all in the midst of the devil's world. Verse 29, Jesus says, And now I have told you, before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Uh, this is one of those signs of the prophets in the Old Testament, making Jesus 
um, the great prophet. Jesus, like some of the prophets of the Old Testament, sang things before they happened so that when they happened, they would know not only the prophet speaks for God, but they would know that the Lord is God. Jesus, too, saying certain things before they happened so that when they happened, the disciples would believe and would be encouraged in that. And they needed that encouragement. They needed that help. Because Jesus says, I will, in verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world, that is the devil, Satan himself, is coming. This language of the ruler of the world will be brought up later in uh, chapter 16 as well. It's already been referenced earlier. And, and Jesus is highlighting the fact that while God is the God of the entire universe, Satan is the ruler of this world. Um, and he has blinded the nations up to this point in the, uh, the history of the world until Jesus comes and is crucified and is resurrected. And Satan will no longer be able to blind the nations. While he may attempt to rule this world, he can no longer blind the nations from the good news of great joy that shall be for all people. And so Jesus says that even though while he's the ruler of the world, Jesus wants to make it abundantly clear, he has no claim on me. He has no claim on Jesus. Jesus has not sinned. And he did not, because of the virgin birth that we celebrate at Christmas, he did not inherit a sinful nature. And so Satan has no claim on him, which is why he spent Jesus' entire life and ministry tempting him, as we saw most clearly in the wilderness uh, where Satan tempted Jesus three times, twisting God's word. Jesus remained obedient and remained faithful so that his obedience and suffering would then be perfect and effective in accomplishing our salvation. And so Satan has no claim on Jesus, which is why Jesus would later say um, that they're coming to take me, but no one takes my life. I give my life. It's because Satan couldn't take it from him. But Jesus says, I do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. And isn't that what Jesus told us? That if we love Him, in John 14, 15, we would keep His commandments? And Jesus saying, I'm going to do what you can't do. And I'm sending a helper to help you do that which I've commanded you to do so that you could do it better once I'm gone. Not perfectly, but better. Uh, more and more so, day in and, and day out. And so Jesus is promising that he's going to accomplish what we could not accomplish on our own. And it gives us great hope. Uh, this, this Jesus, whom we celebrate this Christmas, is God incarnate. The in incarnational witness to the world. So that these disciples and people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every language would be able to hear of this good news of great joy that offers them the help of the Spirit, the peace of the Son, the joy uh, of the Father, 
Jesus came to bring that to us. Christian, we've experienced that. Uh, And now we go out into this ruler's world, Satan's world that has persecution, has trouble, has temptation, and we go out to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. We go out as incarnational witnesses that others might know the help that comes in the Spirit, the peace that comes in the Son, the joy that comes in the Father. So I want you to consider, uh, if you've trusted Christ, both as the incarnate God and the incarnational witness, having made these things known to you, then would you go to be His incarnational witness this week? Who is it whom you'll cross paths with this week? Whether at work, your neighborhood, family gathering, uh, an outing, who is it that you will have the opportunity to share the gospel with? Consider uh, the ways in which Jesus was a witness to the world and step into those. Living differently, speaking differently, worshiping differently. But if you've yet to experience uh, that help, that kind of peace, that kind of joy that I described to you today, trust Christ today. It's whom we celebrate as Christians this Christmas season. More than Santa, more than gifts, more than decorations, more than um, all of those things. We celebrate Christ and His coming. And if you trust Christ this morning, this Christmas, will be full of worship, um, more full of joy, more full of peace. Again, vertical worship, vertical joy, vertical peace. Even if your family struggles are not solved, your financial troubles are not solved, your health situation is not solved, you'll have a place with God secured for you. A peace with God that surpasses all understanding and a joy that is uh, beyond belief. So trust Him this morning. Let's pray. Father, I ask that You would do what I cannot. And that's bring life where there is death. You've done it in many of our lives in the past. I pray You would do it again for those who Uh, need to experience your life. Jesus, thank you for coming and accomplishing what we could not do on our own through your death and your resurrection. Thank you for giving us a peace um, that the world doesn't offer. And Lord, as we've experienced that peace, help us not turn back to the world. For if we bear the name of Christ, let us look to Christ to give us that peace again. Father, would you renew the, and restore the joy of our salvation? For those that are struggling, let them see that in Christ's death and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the glory of God the Father, there is much joy to be had, knowing that you have won and have accomplished and will return one day. And so we wait we long for, 
we look forward to, we pray and, and say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Have your way among us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing and worship in a closing song of praise together as Christ Church in response to the word. <laughs>